Our scripture reading this morning is, again, from the book of Job, chapters 25 and 26, as we return to our, our study through Job after a couple of weeks. This is the last of the speeches of Job's friends or comforters. Boys and girls, you remember back in chapter 1, in chapter 2, all of the the things that happened to Job where he lost everything that he had. His 10 children died in a single day. He lost all of his servants, all of his livestock. He lost his physical health as his body was covered in sores and boils. He's in such pain that he he took a a broken piece of of pottery to, to scrape his boils with. It says his own wife even told him to just curse God and die. And as Job is sitting there in the ash heap, in Job 2, uh, verse 11, it tells us that his three friends, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, they made an appointment together to come and comfort Job, to sympathize with him and mourn with him. Which, of course, as we've been seeing throughout the book, they don't do a very good job at As the words of comfort that they seek to bring are more like words of accusation that only bring him uh, further hurt and and further suffering, rather than bringing him comfort in the midst of his suffering. So there is this this dialogue that goes on between chapters 4 and really uh, right here as it sort of uh, comes to a close in in chapters 25 and, and 26, and then kind of his last response in chapter 27, which we'll look at in the weeks to come. And as we come here into chapter 25, you really see this dialogue that's been going on uh, spiraling out of control, beginning to derail. As this third round now, Bildad gives a speech of just six verses, sort of a a stumbling, uh, mumbling, stuttering, mumbling speech of of just a couple of verses where he's not really adding anything new, but, but just saying what he's already said. And then Zophar, the third friend, doesn't even, doesn't even speak in this last round. I think suggesting to us something of the bankruptcy of this system as it is, is um, derailing and offering no comfort. So we'll read Bildad's speech in chapter 25 of just six verses and then Job's response in chapter 26. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number? To his armies, and upon whom does his light not rise? How then can man be righteous before God? How can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm? But Job answered and said, How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you consoled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words and whose spirit came from you? The dead tremble. Those under the waters and those inhabiting them, Sheol is naked before him and destruction has no covering He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. 
He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble. They're astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And how small a whisper we hear of him. With the thunder of his power, who can understand? Beloved, throughout this book, as we've been seeing, you really have a, a battle between two different models for ministry, two different uh, systems of theology. Now, one is a sort of cold, dispassionate approach that uh, denies the cross. Job's friends back in chapter 4 say, no one who is righteous has ever been cut off. That's, that's really the introduction that Eliphaz gives to their whole system. No one who is righteous has ever been cut off, and so they they deny the possibility of undeserved suffering, and therefore also the possibility of undeserved grace. It's in chapter 5, as they go on, they imply that there is no heavenly mediator for Job to turn to. That's what they say in 5 verse 1, to whom in heaven, to which of the holy ones will you turn? The implied answer being, None of them. But Job, of course, sees things differently. As in in chapter 9, a couple months back, we we saw that that Job in chapter 9 begins to to wish for a mediator who would lay his hands both on God in heaven and also on man down on earth, on Job, so that a great chasm between the God of the heavens and and, uh, suffering Job on earth could be bridged so that he could be righteous before him, Job 9, verse 2. And so that, as it says in in Job 9, 32 and 33, um, God's God's wrath and judgment could be taken away from him. And that hope continues to grow. We saw something of it in chapter 14, where where Job confesses this this hope that that perhaps even after death, he would be be raised or or renewed and God would take away his sins and smile upon him. It, It grows yet more into chapter 16, where Job says he believes that there is a son of man in heaven who would plead his cause as a son of man pleads for his friends. And then, of course, in chapter 19, we come to that great climax of, of his hope where he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, that he will come and stand in Job's place. And so that's the hope that Job has throughout this book, but it is a hope that Job's friends continue to deny. They deny any such hope in a Redeemer. They, they deny any such gospel hope. And that denial is really what we see from Bildad in chapter 25. What he does in this chapter is he he sets before Job the sovereignty of God, and he sets before him the sinfulness of man, and he basically says, Job, there is no way that you could be righteous before him. 
Abildad understands God's sovereign majesty in such a way that he is so distant from his creatures that there is no possibility of a sinner being justified before God. But Job recognizes that the absence of gospel hope from Bildad's system brings no comfort. And he also recognizes that, that it doesn't really account for the greatness of God in being able to do things even beyond what we're able to comprehend. And so what we have in these two chapters is a, a side-by-side comparison of the graceless system of Bildad and his friends inherited from the tradition of their fathers and a faint gospel hope in the words of Job that show just how great is the chasm between the system of his friends and the gospel of his Redeemer. As we see these two systems, we also see two two different views of, of the greatness and glory and majesty of God. One that is revealed only in how distant he is from his creatures. The other that is revealed supremely and the grace and mercy that he will show to his people in sending his son to become like them, and in fact, to be judged for them. First, we'll look at Bildad's system or the system of Job's friends, which we see well summarized in Bildad's denial of gospel hope in chapter 25, where he really sets before Job two things with one implication. The first point he makes is that God is sovereign. And you see that in, in verses um, 2 and 3, where he, he makes that statement, and then he, he sort of bolsters that claim with four reasons. And so in verse 2 is, is his theme statement, you might say, dominion and fear belong to him, um, him being God. And then as he defends that statement, the first reason why that is so is because God dwells in the highest heights. What he's saying here is is kind of like what we sang from Psalm 115, that our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. That's what Bildad is reminding Job, that God's very location in the heavens testifies to his sovereign majesty and to the great separation between God and man. So that's, that's the first point that he makes. And then second, while God is in the heavens, he makes peace. And you see that in in the same verse, in in verse 2, that God is a God of perfect order and perfect peace, who is in control of every little thing, doing his will both in heaven and on earth. And the implication seems to be that there is no disorder in God's good creation, but everything is in its place. Everything is where it's supposed to be. Everything is how it's supposed to be, including Job suffering for sin. And so he should not, he dare not question this God who brings peace. The next argument that Bildad makes for God's complete and utter sovereignty is is regarding his numberless armies, which are mentioned in verse 3 where it says, is there any number to his armies? And so he's saying, Job, you can see just how great God is from how great his heavenly host is, which may refer to his angelic host, where it may actually refer to the stars, which Bildad will mention in verse 5. He's, he's just mentioned the heavens, which include the sky and the galaxies, and it will go on in the rest of verse 3 to speak of God's light. 
And so it may be the case that the armies referred to are the starry host by which God, according to Genesis 1, governs the night and governs the day. They are the means by which he makes peace from his high heaven and causes his light to rise. It, it seems what Bildad is doing is he's, he's pointing to the starry host in creation, which are one of the means by which God has dominion over creation. It is saying, Job, their brightness and their glory and, and their beauty are but a faint reflection of God's brightness and God's glory and God's beauty. And the fact that these heavenly hosts cannot be numbered only further testifies to his greatness. And so that's the third reason Bildad gives for why God is completely and utterly sovereign, because he dwells in the high heavens while there he makes peace, and because his armies are innumerable. And the fourth reason that Bildad gives sort of uh, flows from that at the end of verse 3, where he says, upon whom does his light not rise? These heavenly hosts by which God makes peace in his high places, they shine over all people in all places for all time, meaning God is God over all. Nothing is outside of his control, but dominion and fear belong to him and him alone. That's Bildad's point about the sovereignty of God. And he moves on in in verses 4 to 6 to the sinfulness of man. Out of this grand and majestic view of the God of the heavens naturally proceeds a very small view of man, which Bildad goes on to articulate with that question, how then can man be righteous before God? This is really the hinge in, in Bildad's argument. In fact, it falls directly in the middle of his speech. He's saying if God really is this universal king with sovereign dominion, making peace by his heavenly host, which cannot be numbered, then what about man? How can man be righteous before this great and awesome God? He's saying if everything that I just said is true, Job, then what right do we have to stand in the presence of the Almighty and demand that we get justice? What right do you have, Job, to question him, and what hope do you have of ever being justified before him? Remember, it's, it's been a few weeks since we looked at, at chapters 23 and 24, but this is, this is what Job was getting at in those chapters where he was longing for justice and he was desiring to come before God and make his case and be justified. And come out as gold. But Bildad is saying there is no way. How could man ever be justified or be righteous before God? It's really the same question that came up back in chapter 15 from Eliphaz where he said, what is man that he could be pure and he who was born of a woman that he could be righteous? Even the heavens, Eliphaz said, are not pure in his sight, so how much less man? Bildad here in verses 4 and 5 says almost the exact same thing. That's what he's doing. He's appealing to a kind of of total depravity, saying, Joe, because you were born to sinful parents, what is that language, born of a woman? Because you were born to sinful parents, you inherit your first parents' sinful nature, and by virtue of that sinful nature, you are not righteous before God. He's in many ways affirming what we'll look at this afternoon in Lord's Day 3, that from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, our nature has become so corrupt that we're all conceived and born in sin. 
and in that he's right. Of course, the problem is that he will fail to ever get past Lord's Day 3 and past Lord's Day 4 and make it to the mediator of Lord's Day 5 and Lord's Day 6. But he is at least right in what he says about our corrupt nature. Now then go on to argue um, from from what he believes to be the the greater to the lesser, saying, if not even the moon and the stars that that I just mentioned in verses 2 and 3, by which God governs the day and governs the night, if not even they are pure in God's eyes, then how could you stand pure in his sight? He's saying, compared to God, the moon is not even bright. The Middle Eastern moon that shines more brightly than you or I could even imagine, it says nothing in his eyes. The stars are not pure in his sight, meaning all of those things that that from a human perspective seem, seem glorious and perfect and unblemished are as nothing before God. He's saying they're not pure, they're not bright, and neither are you, Job. For the stars are purer and brighter than you, yet before God are as nothing, and therefore so are you. That's what Bildad is saying. That's why he calls him a worm in verse 6. In fact, he says that we all are. How much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm. And with that, Bildad speaks his final words and the final words of, of all the comforters in this whole book. And really, in doing so, brings their, their sad argument full circle. Just as Eliphaz denied in chapter 5 there could be any mediator who would plead his cause in heaven, just as Zophar was infuriated in chapter 20 at Job's suggestion of a redeemer who would plead his, his cause and stand in his place. So Bildad closes off their, their entire system with a denial of the possibility of any bridge between this chasm of the great and awesome God of verses 2 and 3 and the filthy, slimy, dirty worm of verse 6. This is why I speak of, of Bildad's speech as a denial of gospel hope. Because what he's doing is he's emphasizing the sovereignty of God. He, he emphasizes the sinfulness of man, but he does so in such a way that leaves no room for the sympathetic Savior who will see Job in his plight and come down to save him. This is the prophetic longing that the Spirit has been working in Job's heart ever since chapter 9 that that grew to that great confession he makes in in chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives. But Bildad will have none of it. And the implication is that there is no hope of salvation. Verse 4, you cannot be righteous before God. It's a nice summary of, of the system of Bildad and his friends, their grace-free philosophy of religion by which they prefigure the Pharisees and the enemies of the cross. As Job points out in chapter 26, they've got it all wrong. Here in chapter 26, we see Job's refutation of the wisdom of Bildad as he points us, though yet through a glass dimly, to the gospel hope that Bildad has completely missed. And because he has completely missed it, Job tells him at the beginning of chapter 26, Bildad, there's no comfort in your system. 
There is no comfort in your grace-free philosophy of religion. You set out back in chapter 2, verse 11, to comfort me and sympathize with me, but how have you done that? Verse 2, how have you helped him who has no power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? He's saying, I'm just lying here in in the ash heap. My ten children have died. My own breath is is a stench to my wife. My skin, he'll tell us in chapter 30, has has turned black and is falling off of my flesh, and I have little sense of the smile of God upon me. In fact, it feels like he's forsaken me. But I still love him, and I still trust that he's good, and, and I'm looking for some token of comfort but you've denied it. For as you and I know, our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to our faithful Savior and Redeemer, but but Bildad has denied any such hope. And so Job rebukes him in verses 2 to 4 and says, Bildad, you have failed to give the one thing that would have helped and have therefore failed in your mission to help him who's without power and save the arm that has no strength. You and your friends, you you keep saying that I have no wisdom. But how have you counseled me? How have you made me wise? How have you declared sound advice? And Job is saying you haven't. And so he asks in verse 4, with whose help have you uttered words and and whose uh, spirit or, or whose breath has come out of you. Those two words, spirit and breath, are the same in the Hebrew, depending on what translation you have in front of you. You might, might see um, either word. Job is saying, you have made claims throughout this book to be speaking on God's behalf, but that does not smell like God's breath. Howell Jones, one commentator, says it's like Job is able to smell the foul breath of the old dragon on Bildad's lips and knows that he and his friends are not speaking for God. Derek Thomas, the spirit who has inspired Bildad's words is Satan's, who is trying to extinguish any gospel hope within him and and get Job to deny God as he's been trying to ever since chapter 1. And so what he's doing is is he's now making use of the arguments of the three friends in order to accomplish his mission from chapter 1 in getting Job to deny his God. These friends have become the mouthpiece of Satan, who sometimes comes as an angel of light. He sometimes comes quoting Scripture. He sometimes comes with doctrinal assertions that are at least partly true, as in chapter 25, but is ultimately seeking to steal, kill, and destroy by denying the comfort of the gospel and therefore denying salvation, verse 2, to him who has no strength. Christopher Ashe says the proof that the theological system of the friends is bankrupt is precisely that it has no power to save. That's what Job says in verse 2. How have you saved the arm that has no strength? The proof that their system is bankrupt is precisely that it has no power to save, for only the message of the cross has power to help the helpless and save the one who has no strength. And it is that gospel that Job then points us to in the rest of the chapter, though ever so dimly. 
Where in verses 5 to 10, he basically finishes off Bildad's speech by, by affirming that dominion and fear do indeed belong to God, that he is sovereign, uh, even verses 5 and 6, over death and hell. That verses 7 to 10, he maintains the created order, stretching out the heavens, which are referred to as, as the north, hanging the earth on nothing, and binding up water in thick clouds, drawing a circle around the waters to divide the light and, and the darkness. What Job is doing is he's giving a beautiful poetic description of just what we read in Genesis 1 of God's creation. Job is is affirming that dominion and fear do indeed belong to God, and he makes peace in his high places. From which, verse 9, he is separate from his creation. There, Job says that God covers the face of his throne with a cloud, meaning that the sight of God's throne in the heavens is, is enclosed in the masses of clouds so that no creature can behold his glory. What he's saying is a little bit like what Bildad said in 25 verse 5, that not even the stars can behold God's brightness. And so Job is able to affirm much of what Bildad has said. But then starting in verse 11, he he begins to to differentiate his system from that of Bildad's. There Job speaks of the pillars of heaven, verse 11, trembling and being astonished at God's rebuke. And so this creation of verses 7 to 10 over which God makes peace, the the created order that Job has just described in in such uh, rhetorical beauty, now it says God shakes with his rebuke. What Job is saying is the reality is that this sovereign God you've just described, Bildad, sometimes shakes the ordered predictability of creation. And the reason he does, verses 12 and 13, has to do with the forces of evil that he is overcoming. Where in verse 12, he speaks of of the power of the sea, often a symbol of chaos, and speaks of Rahab, which God will shatter. The New King James simply says storm, but the ESV rightly says Rahab, which in the ancient Near East is a symbol of cosmic evil referred to in verse 13 as the fleeing serpent. Uh, Rahab and and Leviathan are are synonymous in the Old Testament. In fact, they'll come up again in chapter 41 where this great sea monster is described as the king over all the sons of pride. On earth is not his equal. It is a dragon-like depiction of Satan. And so Job, in in mentioning Rahab, the fleeing serpent, is making the point that the reason why God sometimes shakes the ordered predictability of creation is because of the presence of evil and the presence of the serpent, Satan, Leviathan, whom he will pierce and shatter and will do so through that very disordering. You see what Job is saying? He's saying, Bill, that you have not accounted for the fact that God sometimes shakes up the ordered predictability of creation as part of his subduing of evil. He's saying God's sovereignty, which which you and I both affirm, does not simply mean that, 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 that his, or it doesn't simply mean his upholding of the expected order of creation, the peace that you speak of in 25 verse 2, but God's upholding of creation goes beyond that. 
He's saying God's sovereignty goes beyond just the upholding of the expected order of creation that you've been advocating your system where good things always happen to those who are good and bad things always happen to those who are bad, but it goes beyond that. Again, Ash says, Job has grasped that the problem and threat of evil is of such a magnitude that its destruction will involve a shaking that goes to the very core of creation. A shaking that throughout this book is embodied and anticipated in Job's own innocent sufferings. A shaking that will finally be fulfilled only when the earth will quake at the cross and there will be darkness at noon as the innocent man to whom Job points will suffer. Job sees this only through a glass dimly, but this is the prophetic logic of his response to Bildad which he concludes in verse 14 by affirming that God's wisdom goes beyond anything we can perceive in creation and providence. Bildad has only scratched the surface. He has only touched the mere edges of God's ways. Job says we have heard only a small whisper of him. For the thunder of his power And of his wisdom will only be fully and finally revealed when the created order is so shaken that the creator himself will go to the cross and the earth will be covered in darkness. It is in that that God's power and God's glory and God's wisdom will ultimately be revealed. Which Bildad completely misses. He misses that the way God will overcome Satan, sin, and death, the way that God will pierce the fleeing serpent and lay Sheol and Abaddon naked is through the innocent suffering of his son, whom Job prefigures. Bildad misses that the great chasm between this high and holy God of Job 25, verses 2 and 3, and the small and filthy worm-like man of Job 25, 4 to 6, will be bridged by the Son of Man, who is born of a woman, fulfilling the very language of Job 25, assuming our humanity, becoming that worm for us. As he will cry out on the cross in Psalm 22, which we sang, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people, even forsaken by his father. And it is in that that the chasm will be bridged between God and man, and man will be, right- be able to be righteous before God. The answer to Job's problem is the mediator for whom he's been longing, whose innocent sufferings will crush the serpent and make man blessed, righteous before God. And it's only that good gospel news that can help the one who's without power and save the arm that has no strength because our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. This, beloved, is the comfort that Job failed to receive from his friends. And so they will receive the same rebuke from God in chapter 42 that they do hear from Job in chapter 26. And so as as we think about the application of of a passage like this, let me give you uh, four things. Now, first we have, again, in the council of Bildad, a prime example of how not to comfort a suffering saint. That's why we're, we're dragged through 
24 or so chapters of this, so that, that, that the Holy Spirit would imprint upon our minds, this is not how we bring comfort to God's people. And in this, this negative example that we have here in Bildad, he really does two things. Um, first, he, he beats Job down with the doctrine of God's sovereignty, and then with reminders of Job's sins. As if to say, like Eliphaz in chapter 5, Job, just recognize that God is sovereign and be happy that he corrects you. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. He's saying, don't rebel against God's sovereignty, but deal with it. As if Job's laments have somehow been a rebellion against God's providence. So he beats him down with the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And then his his reminder of Job's sin that we we see in verses 4 to 6 reminds us of the sort of thing we've seen throughout the book, like um, Zophar back in chapter 11, where he, he actually had the audacity to say, as he denied Job's innocence and then rubbed his presumed sinfulness in his face, he said, God exacts of you less than you deserve. He pointed to Job's sin, which he himself could not identify as the great cause of Job's suffering, and that says you actually deserve worse, so count yourself blessed. And in that way, Bildad and Zophar prefigure the countless moralists, even in the church, who will beat down the one who has no power and has no strength by blaming them for their suffering and rubbing their sin in their face. Or using God's sovereignty like a mallet to shut them up, as Bildad tries to do in verses 2 and 3, or Eliphaz back in chapter 5. Beloved, the first application of this passage is do not be a miserable comforter like Bildad by missing the good news of the gospel that is our only comfort. If, like them, you you seek to make an appointment together with with others to come and bring comfort to the one who has no strength and to sympathize with them and mourn with them, do not opt for the graceless system of the friends as opposed to the comfort of the gospel. That's the first thing that we learn from Job 25 and 26. Then secondly, and this is um, perhaps for those of you who are or uh, will be suffering for those of you who, who perhaps come here this morning with, with heavy burdens or in the weeks or months to come, will we'll find yourself there. Recognize that the wisdom of God's power is often revealed through suffering. The wisdom of God's power is often revealed through suffering, through the shaking up of the created order to subdue evil, even as we see happening in the book of Job and happening at the cross of Christ. Understand that the wisdom of God's ways often involves the suffering of his people as part of his plan to trample Satan, sin, and death, and do not view your suffering then as evidence of God's displeasure. Recognize the fact that you are suffering does not mean that God is displeased with you. But third, understand that even as God would subdue evil through the suffering of his son or through the suffering of his servant Job who typifies his son, that continues to be the way he often works in this world as those who are united to Christ by faith are likewise called to share in his suffering. And the book of Job has been calling us to have no disillusions about that fact, but to be prepared to share in the suffering of the one to whom Job points. And finally, as we do, this passage calls us to recognize the comfort 
that God gives in the gospel, where he knows our sufferings because he has entered into it in his son, who much to Bildad's surprise would become the worm of Job 25.6 so that we could ascend to the high heaven of Job 25.2 where evil will one day be fully vanquished and the sea of Job 26.12 will be no more, but God will be with us and will be our God and there'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, but the former things will have passed away and he will be all in all. As we read Job 25 and Job 26 canonically within the whole context of the Bible story of redemption, that is the comfort God provides to help him who is without power and save the arm that has no strength. That he will overcome evil through the very suffering of the one Job anticipates, the very suffering of his son. God in heaven who will take on human flesh and become a a filthy, slimy, dirty worm like us. Suffer in our place. And so we respond to that by ascribing him glory and saying with Job and, and even with Bildad, with the church throughout the ages, dominion and fear belong to God. He's therefore worthy of all our worship. Father, we thank you for this book. This book which, which has so often confronted the ways that, that we often think about you, about walking in obedience to you. We thank you for how we see in these, these two side-by-side uh, -side pictures of the, the majesty and greatness of, of you, God Almighty. How important it is not to view you as so distant from your creatures that, that we miss your heart and the gospel, that we miss the fact that in Christ you, you come near to us, you, you suffer in our place, Christ suffers in our place. Lord, we thank you for how in doing that, Christ indeed overcomes Satan, sin, and death. You are giving us in this book a picture how you overcome evil through the very suffering of your son, whom Job anticipates, and through the very suffering of us, your sons and daughters in the son, who are called to share with Christ in his suffering. Lord, we pray that you'd be teaching us through the book of Job to see whatever trials you bring our way as, as part of your sovereign and wise plan of, of salvation. We pray that you would comfort us in the midst of our suffering with the good news of our sympathetic Savior who has bridged the gap between you, the sovereign God, and us, the sinful men. We pray that you would help us never to be miserable comforters like Bildad. And we pray, Lord, that as we have beheld this morning your glory and the gospel of your Son, you would help us to respond by confessing that dominion and fear do indeed